0: In a world where points depend on hinges,
1: there are hinge points inside us all.
0: History on a segue.
1: It's overdetermined.
0: We are the points that our hinges have been seeking.
1: What this podcast asks is. What if Agriculture? Fail or Epic Win?
0: What if it was Johnny Bango Pit? What if the Ottomans had AK-47? Maybe climate change wasn't good enough. What if the Ottomans had lights What if the buffalo killed the What if Santa Claus was real? Like an actual guy who gave presents every year. This
1: is Hinge Points. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hinge Points. I'm Danny Bessner, normally of the American Prestige Podcast, but I am here with my buddy, Matt Chrisman, to talk about another hinge point. You, you've already hear, heard us talk about a lot of different things, from Doggerland to Martin Luther to other fun issues in history. And today, we're going to focus on an issue that's a little bit more recent, and that is, in particular, the 1960 election. And specifically, what if Richard Milhouse Nixon won that election over John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And we are excited to be joined by Noah Colwyn of the Blowback Podcast. Noah, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, no worries. So the way that we're doing this, we're kind of starting with, with the world as it actually is so we could understand how things might have changed. So Noah, why don't you set the scene about what JFK actually did and what are some of the important hinge points that we're going to be talking about today?
2: Right. So JFK, you know, listeners should recall, he didn't really have that much of a tenure in office, a thousand days, as Arthur Schlesinger famously termed it in his book. And so the accomplishments that he did make were often not really these, you know, big legislative or administrative achievements that we remember decades later because his administration didn't have the juice to get any of that kind of stuff through. So when listen with- to
0: LBJ. He was right there. He was telling them what to do. And they're so like sure ha- sure grandpa.
2: Yeah yeah. So what you have instead is more of a a a set of uh, you know, positions that are substantial evolutions from the previous occupant of the White House and that will effectively determine the trajectory of the 60s vis-a-vis the federal government in a number of key areas in terms of labor racketeering and the justice department in terms of civil rights and in terms of I would really strongly argue the you know broadly speaking what we would consider the quasi confrontational posture that was adopted by the executive branch the fact that the executive branch over the course of the 60s Felt, yes, compelled to wage a Cold War, but as was the case during the 1950s, was ultimately a force uh, handcuffed to a military whose goals and interests were often strongly divergent. And so the question then becomes, in 1960, were one man, a different man, to win that White House spot, I suppose, would the coalition, would the powers of play uh, have broken a, you know, in some different
1: fashion? Would it have gone down different? And maybe before we even get into the hinge point, Matt, why don't you not you tell us who who is Richard Milhouse Nixon? What social forces does Dick Nixon represent in 1960? <laughs> One of your favorite topics. Richard
0: Nixon is the revenge of Main Street. Uh, he is he is the uh, the middle class uh, subject, really, uh, uh, confronting the reality of uh, competing for power in the uh, context of America's like class and the world's class uh, apocalypse of World War II. And uh, the American middle class that comes out of that is in a st- constant churning state of anxiety, uh, resentment, uh, fear of falling, uh, and uh, self-loathing at one's uh, lack of uh, acceptance by the powers that uh, are both repulsive and uh, also the only sources of power or uh, affirmation in life. So Nixon, the son of, uh, of a struggling grocer from Whittier, California, uh, who had to go to his local Whittier College because he couldn't afford or get a, a scholarship or uh, be brought in as a fucking legacy like John F. Kennedy. If anyone wants a laugh, someone should, uh, anybody ever wants a laugh, look up John F. Kennedy's admissions essay to Harvard. If you want to chuckle, it, is, it might as well have been written in fucking crayon. It's like he was a fourth grader. It's a goddamn shame. To Harvard. It is a good school and would give me a good liberal arts education. So he had to go to Whittier where he had to form the Orthogonians because the Franklins wouldn't let him in. And spends World War II making money uh, at a poker table uh, in a rear echelon uh, supply depot in the Pacific. Comes home, gets his Navy uniform, uh, sells his soul to a pack of jackals uh, from Orange County, uh, uh, the real estate fascists who are going to end up funding this entire anti-New Deal movement that uh, is going to emerge and become politically articulate in the coming decades. Uh, He goes up to the Bay Area and uh, uh, swamps poor Jerry Voorhees, uh, a classic Uh, fellow traveler, useful idiot style, do-gooding liberal who was effectively an ally to the American Communist Party without knowing it. Bye-bye, Jerry. Uh, And he becomes representative, uses the red scare to come to power, uh, becomes a senator at an incredible young age, really mirrors JFK in his uh, ascent. But again, from this churning, uh, anxious, resentful position. Uh, the and then here he spends, also with nixon uh, yeah, he, he is able to secure the the nineteen fifty two democratic uh, republican uh nomination for vice president by uh spending the train ride from uh california to the r n c convincing earl weaver to support nixon uh on the for the president's or for uh, eisenhower against uh taft uh and then his reward for that is um uh the vice presidency where He spends eight years being held at arm's length by a uh, Eisenhower who looks down on him as a grubby little politician. uh, And and there's a lot, you know,
2: there is so much to back up Eisenhower's intuition about Nixon, even at that time and at that stage of his career, because – One of my favorite examples of sort of Nixon cronyism to speak to the power base he represents was that he was deeply in bed with the real estate lobby and especially the SNLs who were really, really critical to encouraging the right kind of uh, population growth and real estate development in Southern California. And one of Nixon's last acts was involved as a very controversial measure as a senator to get involved to kill public housing in Los Angeles, which I mainly bring up because Public housing was one of the big issues where Nixon and Kennedy did diverge and where Kennedy, with the new frontier in 1961, was actually able to introduce something that Nixon might have been straight up opposed to, at least on domestic policy, in terms of where you can see like a straight up plus or negative on a single definable issue that also goes right to the heart of, you know, the way Nixon operates, because, you know, Joe Crayle, a figure I've written about a California SNL executive, was one of the first donors to the Nixon slush fund and one of the leaders of the campaign to kill public housing in Los Angeles, a campaign with which Nixon assisted gratefully.
0: So while Eisenhower held Nixon at arm's length uh, and kind of undercut him a few times, uh, Nixon never forgave him for uh, having the Fed sort of allow, and in fact, kind of encourage a recession to cool down the economy in the late fifties and that he blamed partially on his defeat. Uh, But one thing Eisenhower did give him at the end of his second term was control, uh, uh, was White House, uh, was executive control of the task force to overthrow the new Castro regime in Cuba. So whereas Kennedy has the Bay of Pigs plan kind of dropped on his lap when he is uh, inaugurated, Nixon, before he even is uh, would have become president, is already deeply uh, invested in this project and has a proprietary relationship to it, which I think means that if we assume a few de- de- a few thousand dead people switch their change their minds in Illinois and he becomes president, means that we can sort of assume that uh, if he were president, I really do think he would have done what he said after words to other people many times. He would have done, which is. Uh, green light a bombing uh campaign and if that didn't do it if that didn't get the uh the rebels off of the beachhead then send in the fucking marines and i think he would have done all of that the question is Okay. okay what then happens
1: Right. Okay. A couple. A couple of things. One thing that I always find interesting is that Nancy Pelosi is currently uh, in the same congressional district as Nixon was in Northern California. A fun little historical fact there. So let's say that that Matt, what Matt said is right. A few dead people vote differently, and Nixon wins a sixty election. And what Matt was referring to was the Bay of Pigs. So, so Noah, you just did a thing on Cuba. What actually happens during the Bay of Pigs? What what decision does Kennedy make? and then what decision might nixon make
2: so i think that like the uh, matt made the point uh, made the correct, uh, first point which is that basically the bay of pigs was dropped on kennedy's lap although you know the you know he he he's famous for saying in its aftermath that uh defeat uh, uh what is it Victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. So that comes out of the disaster at the Bay of pigs, where he's basically saying like, yep, I got to take responsibility for it. But, you know, everybody knows that this was something that had been developed for years because of the, you know, years long campaign against Castro that sort of reaches, uh, you know, a sort of two year Zenith, let's say, uh, beginning around when Kennedy takes office actually. And, the really nutty part of it is that the plan, even though it was dropped on Kennedy's lap, was a terrible plan. There wasn't really, a, it didn't, it did not have any realistic chance of succeeding because Alan Dulles, the historical evidence I would argue indicates that he believed that one of two things. He believed one, or both, rather um and or uh he believed that there would be a successful assassination of castro and key members of the cuban leadership on the island prior to the invasion and that that would create an opening for even a shitty invasion to work which is not dissimilar to what happened in guatemala in 1954
0: so was it were they basically like uh, crossing their fingers that the mafia would get the job done there
2: well they like they say you know it's like I, it's interesting that you say crossing their fingers because it's like functionally, that's what they were doing. But in their heads, they may have believed like, oh, we're getting them done. We're getting them this time.
0: We've had talks. The, the, these Italian gentlemen have the whole thing under control.
2: <laughs> the Italian element is secure, sir. The Italian element, yeah, like they, they thought they had it totally locked down, the whole thing. And then the other big problem uh, you know, that, that they had, or rather that Dulles was relying on and that didn't come through, was that if things didn't go right, that Kennedy would pull the trigger on a wider invasion. And you would have to the, for
0: the prestige,
2: exactly. Think and, the, of the, and this is you know, and this is a, a very uh, this was the wrong assumption for a number of reasons. Um, and ultimately, the invasion fails, you know, like the on the ground because they don't have air support, the boats aren't right. I mean, right. Kennedy falls refuses air
1: support. That's the big the, the big choice is that Kennedy well, he, basically yeah, says, I mean, the
2: air support bit is even if he had supplied it it's not really clear that it would have helped ultimately. However, the memory becomes in something that is, you know, relevant to the Kennedy Nixon argument is that Kennedy in the 1960 campaign had run to the right of Richard Nixon on Cuba. He had basically in a debate said, you know, Fidel Castro, Real Castro, they're as powerful as ever. Uh, you know, we're going to, you know, it's like, and what has Nixon done? whereas Nixon. He's like that goddamn Kennedy and his Jews. Like, da like they, they know that I've done stuff, but I can't say it. Cause you know, Dallas briefed them, da-da-da and you know the secret honor if you want to hear that whole rant but he this difference in tech you know kennedy decides not to pull the trigger not to give the air support make it clear that he's not going to go through with it and nixon's argument as matt has said is was that actually no you have to fight communism everywhere and you got it we should have sent in the marines we should have sealed the deal um and i'm not sure that so does nixon
1: actually do that so like that's something that's i mean yeah it's a great so this is the real question like there's that decision point, right? Let's say say the invasion begins as it does in our timeline, where the the invaders aren't doing especially well. They're getting railed by the defenses uh, in Cuba. Nixon is faced with this choice to send in air support. Does he do it? And if he does, what does that mean? Do we get a Vietnam style quagmire does the invasion actually succeed does that actually lead people on the island to rise up against castro the mafia did have a lot of capital invested in cuba and had had for for decades at that point what do you think happens or- nixon, <gasps> right or nuclear <laughs> nuclear war <laughs> so what do you what do you guys think happens if nixon nixon makes the choice let's say he makes the choice for air support
2: i would guess that the If Nixon were to make the choice for air support, the first thing that would happen and would really be the first test is the diplomatic interventions. In 1950, when Truman – and, you know, this is the recent precedent for international crisis uh, at that moment – Truman is, you know, he you know mentions and just affirms that he's the guy who drops atomic bombs, and Clement Attlee is already on a plane. You know, he's already on the phone, like, like and he's, you know, our best friend, and they have troops in Korea. So, and he's saying, like, shut the fuck up, Harry. So, the... The thing that Kennedy never had that like the historical record does not show that Kennedy really had to deal with was that there would be a meaningful big question of like oh you know I should like actually give air cover in there it was never really like that dramatic of a question uh, the the you know the, the record seems to kind of indicate I think in the case of Nixon you know it would be I, I am not so sure that he would have actually continued through with such a large military operation if all of a sudden everybody at the UN and in the west is on the phone with him saying if you do this the rest of the world will not respect you they will think of you as the nazis and because at that moment the idea of american prestige and freedom as you know outweighing its economic power i just don't feel that they could have i think that nixon would have been more conscious of it just simply by being the guy in the chair it's a heavily moderating influence
0: so then if he bombs if he drops the bombs I think we all would 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 say even if that happened, that still does not make the pay a big successful. Like no. you're still going to have them get uh, rolled up from the beachhead because they just don't. It's, it was a bad plan, poorly executed uh, and insufficient uh, to begin with.
2: It, it would be it would be a fear strategy. The idea, okay, and that's, but yeah.
1: But, but, let's say we also have to think about staffing because Noah, I think you're right to a certain degree. There is a sort of liberal internationalist moderating influence that that Kennedy himself embodies, but what if Nixon's on the phone with Curtis LeMay? What if Nixon's on the phone with these other strategic air command people who really want to demonstrate that you actually can use atomic bombs and they don't always have to be used to end a war They're maybe good for let's your say teeth. right, 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 maybe what what? It's not impossible, at least from my perspective, to imagine a world where Nixon does the air support, the air support fails, and then he's talking to Strategic Air Command, and they're like, okay, tactical nukes. Why not, I don't why not use tactical nukes?
2: I don't disagree at all. To me, the thing that feels like <laughs> – and I think it's very possible.
1: Because Nixon – one more thing I want to add, because Nixon would also want to separate himself from Eisenhower because eisenhower was so consciously not the the guy who's not going to do rollback and nixon resented eisenhower he would want to shore up himself particularly with the generals particularly because you have someone in the republican party who's not a general like eisenhower right so he's more apt he might split the baby and then do the invasion so
0: it's like oh i yes if the if the question is just let the invasion die or drop a nuke I am, at the end of the day, a human being enmeshed in human institutions, and that is a bridge too far, especially when you consider that Nixon, this would be a Nixon who would be, like, five years less crazy than the one who became president. Well, The thing in his head, it was, you know, it's time release, as it is in anyone. Uh, So he's, like, more
2: (laughs) together in 1960. Well, and and also, I, I do think that, again, like, one of the things that's also hard, I think, to people, like... You know, anti-communism and Nazism have in common the, like, you know, tremendous ability for people to rationalize stuff that they know is bullshit. But because they believe that the outcome is worth it. So they're like, yeah, listen, like, I know that that guy who says that, like, Jesus is coming next Tuesday and that, like, all the Jews have to, like, give their blood is, you know, he's a little bit crazy. But he's also, like, the Clark County Republican Party chair. So we got to listen to him. And so, you know, like, that, that's part of it. And in the case of Nixon, you know, I mean, this is something where I, I am pretty much persuaded by, like, the the basic Rick Perlstein argument about the guy's character in terms of that, like, he never really could fully reject that. You know, there's a reason Kissinger was the guy running his foreign policy as opposed to somebody further to the right, because ultimately he viewed himself as, you know, at at best, right, an incredibly competent, like, servant and new legacy within, you know, the the pantheon of. American leaders, and that doesn't include crazies. And that's, you know, something that ultimately is, I would argue, like part of what leads to his downfall, um, you know, surrounding Watergate many, many years later.
0: OK, so then we take off the board two possibilities. Uh, he he they they do the bombing. America tips its hand, which happened anyway. Uh, that didn't work. We say, oops, uh, then you get probably the similar thing. You get a, a Cleveland missile crisis. Let's assume that doesn't as, it's similarly as in our world doesn't look the nuke. Or he drops the nuke in some way out of that. And either one of those, we're kind of done talking. Well, I I think Uh, at least about this specific thing, but the one that is left then is what if he decides, okay, we're going to send in an American peacekeeping operation. We, we, we cloak it in the language of a police action. We say, well, the way we did in uh, the Dominican Republic, 10 years years, later, like in 1965, and then basically dare the Soviets to then escalate to nukes. And Khrushchev would not have done that. I think we can we can all agree that Khrushchev would not have in that situation uh, willingly launched a first strike.
2: Well, I I would also say that the other thing to consider is that the 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 way Nixon conceived of it and a lot of conservatives conceived about the debate was that, you know, there were two like Cuba was, if anything like the you know, and this is it, it actually is kind of helpful the way the CIA organized their divisions about it, like, you know, in the Kennedy years, they would, you know, they created like a whole Cuba desk within the CIA and your CIA stations all over the world would have a Cuba desk officer. And so Cuba, in a sense, like you could forget the geographic location. It became like a whole other specific front in the Cold War. So, okay, if that's one front, what are the other fronts? And if the Cold War is this global war, as Nixon and others conceived it, where, you know, when you apply pressure here and ease pressure here, what are the things that maybe if we intend ratchet the heat up in Cuba that we could get get away with in say Berlin or in Vietnam. And so that to me is some of the where I think the Cuban missile crisis becomes an opportunity to see, you know, uh, you know, we call it a Cuban missile crisis in part because Americans were never apprised popularly of the fact that it had these global geopolitical implications and that those were ultimately the considerations moderating the Americans hands most strongly. And that, you know, which was, you know, the idea that like if the Americans move on Cuba, the Soviets move in Berlin. Because, you know, East Berlin or Berlin, sorry, let me rephrase Berlin rather, is like, you know, 60 miles into, or 100 miles into East Germany. And so there was the very real idea, you know, that the that, that the US actually, you know, when the when it came time push uh when it came for uh uh push come to shove that the US would actually have, you know, the Soviet Union had more leverage than the US even at its most fundamentalist individuals was, you know, ever really willing to acknowledge.
1: And also but we're talking about the Bay of Pigs. That's happening in the midst of the second Berlin crisis, where it's just like this liminal period where Khrushchev has made several threats about maybe you know just taking West Berlin, and so that uh, that I think does legitimately function as a moderating influence. The only difference is is the question is is Nixon enough of a of a psychopath effectively to be like, it's the, uh, the Caribbean is the American lake and, and my status with the military and particularly the air force depends on me doing something here. I, I I think Kennedy is able to, to, to say no in a way because he has a relatively somewhat oppositional uh, stance, particularly his staff towards the uniform military where Nixon would have a totally different power base. And that leads to my next question. So Noah, maybe you can describe what is the CIA think of Kennedy? And how is that different if Nixon is president?
2: So I think that the CIA, if anything, like looked at Kennedy really favorably and their antagonism to him only really began and was not complete, by the way, like the CIA shouldn't be described as a monolith. It was even as an institution with its own differing power centers and so on. But on the whole, you know, they began pretty enamored with it. Alan Dulles favored favored Kennedy over Nixon, in part, not just because the CIA thought of themselves as, you know, the most uh, effective and cosmopolitan uh, and, you know, engaged with the world of all the, you know, major, uh, you know, national security agencies. Uh, I, I think that they really would have probably viewed Kennedy as, hey, listen, if Nixon doesn't hold on for another four years, which he probably won't. Um, You know, because historically, that's not really, you know, the successor to a two term uh, president is often, you know, not somebody who in their own right is able to succeed and extend the project. Uh, And so I think that there would have probably been, you know. You could argue that, like you know, the Cuba crisis may have just come four years, you know, in 1965 or something, as opposed to 62, after Kennedy wins in his first presidential election, uh, after Nixon loses because he, you know, the economy is like okay, but it, you know, there is like some uh, inflation beginning to crop up, which was the case by the mid 60s. That is also beginning to undergird the social discontent that is beginning to pour out across the country, like seeing or imagining a. Republican president in the beginning of the sixties for the civil rights movement would have been fucking crazy. Like, and that would have probably been another really powerful moderating or difficult influence for any Republican, you know, president or president, you know, looking to court a Southern political base for the future, which Nixon political strategists were already hoping to do. It's hard to, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think we got
1: to pause for a second here because I want to hear what you guys think about Nick's, Nixon's state of mind in the early 1960s if he doesn't lose the election. What do you think he's like if he wins this election? Because I do think the Nixon of the early 1970s, place in the early 1960s, d- is radical and makes relatively radical moves
0: oh yeah no if, if if you have nixon just the guy if you like just transported him from like his second term as president to uh yeah from like 70 uh from like 73 to six to uh the early 60s he's pressing the button baby bye-bye we're done yeah, for it totally he's absolutely pressing the button uh uh he he he, didn't he have to? i mean it is on record that he actually did call in a nuclear fucking attack on north korea that he had to have his uh his general's counterman right that happened or is that just alleged uh i'm not sure honestly let me see this this is this is uh this is in the
1: archives that he got ripped shit during watergate and i think it was it was the maya gez incident i've heard about this i'm not i'm not i'm not sure but i, I have heard about this my my guess is that if i heard about it is probably real yeah
0: but i think yeah you get a but a, a, a six a, a early 60s nixon who has only ever won an election has never faced uh, you know a hostile frothingly negative public uh, the way that nixon had to endure during his presidency uh, i think more has more to lose in every sense, and therefore is going to play things much more uh, uh, cautiously than the Nixon that we uh, had in our world.
1: So then this is interesting. So what Nixon is often famously referred to as the last New Deal president. So maybe we could talk a little bit about domestic policy before we we maybe turn to Vietnam, which I'm curious what you guys uh, think would happen. So how do you think Nixon is different on domestic policy? Noah, you were talking about the civil rights movement. Could you expand on that?
2: Yeah. So I, I think, you know, Nixon is sort of like your classic, like Bigfoot Bjornson, Southern California fascist, who is aligned primarily with real estate interests, big business as far as, you know, manufacturing concerns, um, defense industrialists. It's a very, uh, you know it's a, it's a it's a fairly you know new money crowd as far as these things go um, a lot of people in a fairly new power base that is coming into being in the post war period and so as far as the civil rights uh, you know fights are concerned uh, fights over housing um, and busing will ultimately, you know, these are the, you know, you can see the latent configurations that will become much more relevant later on when he's president and that will, you know, as, you know, make a, making up the silent majority, uh, propelling him into power. And, you know, in the case of Kennedy, the Democratic Party is, you know, sort of, there is this long term. You know, issue where the southern base, the southern, the Democratic Party's uh, cosmopolitan, union, uh, socially liberal interests can no longer abide being in the same part of the same you know political party as the South, and so you know the way I see it is that by the time. 1960 rolls around the trajectory is kind of largely understood or at least felt if not so explicitly articulated to you know the party mandarins for both democrats and republicans but the way in which you know these politicians individually each try to thread that needle of what the future is going to look like and ultimately if they as individuals come to you know personally uh, try to shepherd through civil rights, uh, civil rights legislation in the fashion that, you know, like if we're, if if we're weighing it against history as it happened, which is LBJ doing it after the death of John F. Kennedy and, you know, sort of acknowledging uh, (laughs) that he may, that, you know, that he may be, uh, or that rather he is like, you know, sending the democratic party into a tailspin, Um, you know, but it's, he's trying, but you know, it's for the great society and it's to sustain the Vietnam war and so on. Uh, If that's sort of what we're weighing it against, then, you know, I think that the way that the civil rights uh, policies unfolded in the early 1960s with Nixon as president, you know, I I mean, it probably would have... We would have seen a lot of the unresolved or, you know, would have become really serious issues of inequality and poverty that were growing in the 1950s uh, get even more serious. I mean, it would have been really difficult for America to stomach a story of like, you know, selling the fact that, yeah, they have this beautiful interstate system, but also they have slums that look like Latin America's. Uh, You know, I think that that would have been the challenge that Nixon would have confronted. And would there have been a capitalist solution to that, a kind of, you know, neoliberal, but 20 years earlier kind of policy initiative that could have made that work? I'm not sure. You know, it's it's I, I think Nixon may have ultimately been forced to do as he was in the case of price controls in the 70s to resort to something that, you know, people may have called socialistic. But he probably, like Truman, would have found a way to call it national security measures.
0: OK, I got I got a real curveball for you guys. Hit me. I, I just thought of this. So we imagine Nixon in the White House dealing with domestic issues. Let's let's say the Cuba does not cause a conflagration. And we're we're still a mesh there to a greater or lesser degree than we are now. But everything else, you know, we're still dealing with. There's still nominally normal politics going on. And that means you have the civil rights uh, movement and the civil rights issue becoming the dominant domestic question and putting huge fractures, as you said, on these uh party uh alliances and at that point the black vote was not united uh in any sense there was a it was essentially a tip ball between uh the parties i believe that kennedy won the black vote in 60 but very narrowly uh and he was the first democrat to do so since i think truman uh and that meant that there was like a sense that that this black vote was up for grabs what if instead of uh, accelerating the, the Southern strategy that he eventually employed as president and trying to break off the white South, uh, he instead tried to uh, uh, propose a capitalist uh, uh, program of domestic spending and uh, rights extension uh, broken away from the Democratic Party and the labor movement and pitched directly towards the black middle class, which was the, you know, like activist engine of the civil rights movement in the first place.
2: But then you get to the big, well, there's the big wedge of the Nixon that sort of is sort of the interesting, uh, you know, X factor here, I think, which is the Hoffa and the fact that Nixon actually did have specific union allies that he would cultivate because business unionism back in those days meant that you could be conservative and you could work with, like, I have some right-wing pamphlets that are printed from, uh, that were printed uh, by, Uh, Joe Crail, that right wing executive who donated to Nixon and the pamphlets that I have all have union bugs on them. Like they're all made by union printers and so on, Uh, you know, and it's just to say probably they're more union printers than they're necessarily Republican. But point being that, like, there were some, you know, there there was a more openness, I think, to unionism that, like, you know, would have been part of would have been, you know, one of the big questions that sort of comes into play here. How would that Nixon do you think have responded to the union question?
1: And ironically, that might have also even more firmly entrenched the New Deal state. By Instead of in the 60s, if you have a Republican president entrenching the New Deal state, he could be basically the liberal Bill Clinton, which is an interesting thing uh, to think about.
0: And, and maybe you see Nixon as the guy who uh, synthesized the New Deal state rather than the one who kind of was the, uh, the harbinger of its destruction because he took he took a fucking just jackhammer to its social basis.
2: I think that would have been really tough and 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 sort of the like the only way that you can get away with like sort of stripping apart the new deal is by maintaining the cold war. And for the cold war to be maintained, you know, sort of like that's how Vietnam emerges as like this this like, you know, almost like historically predetermined like locale for America to wage a kind of to wage a conflict and there becomes, I guess, this very uh, – there had once been a wing of the Republican Party, like the Robert Tafts, who said, look, like we want laissez-faire economics and we don't want to just like have this crazy military that makes the laissez-faire economics possible. And that was like shut out of the party basically you know, by the early 50s, even before 52. And so – by 1960, if that like whole, you know, kind of restraining impulse is gone, it does feel to me that like, you know, a lot of what we just ended up seeing in the 80s is, you know, you're seeing a lot of the potentialities for that just to happen 20 years earlier, for there to instead be a, you know, sort of aggressive posture about developing new markets and, you know, creating uh, new markets and using that language and so on and, you know appearing willing to back up the, you know, those desires, both by the force of, uh, you know, guns, yes, but also ultimately in the 80s what was super crucial was that the IMF and World Bank began doing, say, structural adjustments. And, you know, were those institutions, would that kind of coercion necessary for the Cold War to be waged in the way that it was in its later years, could that have been possible decades earlier? I'm not so sure. So it sort of goes back to, like, you know, how aggressive, would Nixon have necessarily felt empowered to be in that situation?
1: And I think we need to talk a little bit then about what is his relationship or what do you imagine his relationship being to the security state? And let's talk specifically about the uniformed military and then the CIA. We kind of got away from that question. So Noah, you were saying that initially the CIA – which, of course, can't be viewed as a monolith, but let's just broadly refer to it there, was more for Kennedy than Nixon. So let's say it's, it's, it's 61, Nixon is in office. How does he relate to the uniformed military? And how does he relate to the CIA?
2: Nixon, he loves uniformed boys. He loves their, uh, you know, he has an admiration for them, yes. He is also not one of them. And That he is not one of them, but is, you know, sort of from their world always gives him a kind of interesting adjacency. I think in the case of 1960, he is so much their guy for not just the anti-communism, but also, again the defense contractors who are, you know, they are the biggest employers, some of the biggest and most heavy political muscle. They are, you know, uh, involved in, you know, pamphleteering, anti-communism and trying to get their employees, you know, like making, sustaining the total war mobilization and consciousness well beyond World War II, well beyond Korea and, you know, into the 1960s. And I think that like that sense of like, you know, Uh, that like the U S and the world is sort of in this constant, you know, never ending crisis, uh, is like, you know, the biggest thing that Nixon and the, in the uniformed military shared, um, that, you know, and, and, and that's the, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, it's a good sort of, I think, archetypal model actually for how reactionary bureaucrat and politicians tend to work with the military, you know, it's, it's hand in glove, but there are, uh, points of dissension particularly because ultimately the politician is constrained by factors and considerations that the military leader is not definitionally
1: so that that's a good summary how do you think he'd relate to the CIA
2: the CIA viewed Nixon, you know, he's an anti-communist friend, etc., but they butted heads over the Cuba stuff because Nixon wanted results and he didn't get them and the CIA wasn't delivering them. And also Nixon didn't, tra- you know, Nixon didn't trust them. Nixon had a general uh, who was on his staff, who was like his CIA liaison, who like the CIA, I think his name was Cushman and like the CIA just like totally, uh, you know, like, like uh, Cushbaum uh, and they just totally, uh, you know, marginalized him and, and Nixon fucking hated him uh, or sorry, Nixon, Nixon hated the CIA for treating his, you know, like he viewed them as rivals. And then, you know, ultimately, however, when he becomes president, he has a very different relationship with them by them. Jefferson Morley literally wrote the book on it. And he sort of shows that, like, because the CIA as an institution is both set up to serve the president and its access to the president is what gives it protection, you know, into doing all these very legally dicey things uh, like killing people and running covert wars and stuff. You know, Nixon ultimately and the CIA did have a pretty fruitful relationship up until they didn't. And so I think that, you know, there is like Nixon was operationally probably much more in tune with the CIA, but in a kind of attitudinal sense about, you know, it being kind of gauche to, you know, talk about, you know, the communists and and how, you know, communism is phony baloney and stuff like that. You know, it was it was a little bit too crass for them. It was, you know, it it wasn't their style.
1: So then this brings us naturally to Vietnam. What does Nixon do? In Vietnam, so Kennedy, obviously there's lots of uh, arguments about what he 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 would have done, but what he does do is that he 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 does approve, for example, the assassination of No Ziem. He does indicate that the United States is going to continue to intervene in Vietnam. He does send more advisors there. There's arguments about whether he would have done the escalation in 64, 65. But what do you guys think Nixon, uh, Nixon does as, as Vietnamese, uh, South Vietnamese politics in particular begins to go um, haywire in the early 1960s? Does Nixon just say, forget it? Does Nixon say, I'm going to escalate? I'm going to send troops there? What does he do in 62, 63, 64? I think it kind of depends
0: on what's going on in Cuba. If, if- You have sort of a status quo ante situation. Castro still in power. The U.S. probably uh, at that point uh, enjoined from interfering with him anymore to de-escalate from the nuclear confrontation that inevitably followed. Then I think you see something similar to what happened under uh, Kennedy and Johnson, this dribble of advisors until the advisors couldn't be uh, defended. Then you got to send the troops to defend the advisors, and then you got to send troops to defend the troops, and then you got Operation Dart and all that. I think you'd see something similar, maybe a little accelerated timetable, but a similar, because I think Nixon had a similar uh, insecurity relative to, you know, the, the military state that as uh, Johnson did like Kennedy's big superpower. And the thing that got him killed was his noblesse oblige and his aristocratic confidence. Uh, And Nixon, like Johnson, didn't really have that. Uh, But if there's a, an invasion say like a Marine invasion of Cuba that is like bogged down there. Then I think that's where the focus is. And maybe uh, Vietnam is sort of kept on a back burner to an extent. while uh, like the show of force country, the set piece country of the cold war becomes Cuba 90 miles away rather than Vietnam.
2: Well, I think that, you know, that last point you're making about 90 miles is kind of one of the key things there, because I don't think that the U S could actually sustain a war in that kind of, you know, 90 miles from Miami, et cetera, et cetera, unless it was seeking to, you know, win it totally. Because remember, the reason that the Cubans are, that the Americans are also trying to wage a war there is that they have all these goddamn Cubans breathing down their necks, whom they've recruited and mobilized and who ideally are going to be the ones who run the country once they succeed militarily. So there is also, like, this force that, like, if they're going to do Cuba, that they, like, go through with it in that way. I think that Vietnam is sort of, like... Helpful as kind of also looking at like where, you know, when you look at the state of the American military more generally, like, you know, and and this is also where a lot of the companies that uh, Nixon's, you know, um, initial – Constituents, uh, you know, worked for and so on, like McDonnell Douglas or something, you know, they're the ones who make all these airplanes and air power and bombs and, you know, bomb components and radar mapping and sensors and so on that are ultimately these technologies that are incredibly useful for the kind of war we wage in Vietnam, which is by and large, you know, like unfathomable amounts of ordnance. Uh, you know, dropping napalm and bombs. And that is the kind of thing like that. We couldn't have really done that to Cuba for a number of different reasons, uh, but that we were able to do it in Vietnam, that we were able to do it in Cambodia. Like to me sort of shows that like, you know, that was actually like, there would have been a really strong incentive to have like, you know, picked up where the French had left off in, in Vietnam, even though Cuba may have had more opportunity for success than it would have under Kennedy, so to speak.
0: No, that's and what's a very good point because during the Vietnam War, a lot of people would argue uh, against it by saying, "How? Why are we fighting people three thousand miles away?" And the answer is because that's precisely where we had to fight them. Like if we're going to do this high ordnance, high intensity conflict, it basically has to be halfway around the world, or else it, it risks escalating too much. Exactly, and this is
2: also you know part of the legacy of like America's imperial uh, project begins not you know like, uh, assume, like like you know the first american imperial project is like the genocide and dispossession of the native americans the second you know like like more meaningful one i would argue that you know could basically get lumped in with the uh, you know after mexico i suppose would be you know when we get to the philippines an effort led by future supreme commander of the allied or the father of future supreme commander of allied of asia pacific douglas MacArthur, you know you have this brutal uh, you know, crazy military occupation that begins there. And so it's this American entanglement in Asia and the domination of the Pacific that, you know, requires the demand for America to build the Great White Fleet, and then after the Great White Fleet, to build the best Air Force. An Air Force, by the way, whose effort, you know, like the mythology of that Air Force is, is and how it was built is really staggering. It was highly controversial that America stacked all its chips in that way. Not just for tactical reasons, ultimately, but because the people and the personalities that were pushing it were ultimately doing so, you know, pushing against the grain of the entire military. I mean, there was a fanatic zeal to the growth of the American bomb power.
1: Yeah, and I think a particularly ideological one. (laughs) If anybody actually is interested, I just published a, a piece called The Progressive Origins of Project Rand that gets into this. And this is, I think, leads us to our next point because one of the things that's unique about the Kennedy administration is that he really creates the national security state as we know it today. It's only with Kennedy that all the guys from the Rand Corporation are actually invited into the government. And one of the reasons that we actually did do that type of aerial escalation in Vietnam is because you have eggheads People like Walt Rostow, for example, arguing in, in favor of this graduated deterrence that could, be rationally, uh, that could be rationally pursued. Dick Nixon in no world invites any of those people into the administration. There are no eggheads in the, in the, in the Dick Nixon administration. So that is also really interesting to me. He's not inviting people like Charles Hitch or Elaine Enthoven or, or my, my friend Hans Speyer into the administration. You know why? it's
0: not just that he distrusts them and he thinks they're commies and Jews or whatever. It's because he's smarter than all of them. Here's the thing that we got to remember. Nixon is vastly more intelligent than that, Than John F. Kennedy is. He's vastly more knowledgeable about the way the world works. He is a smarter guy, which means that he doesn't really need these motherfuckers buzzing in his ear. Like he doesn't well, and, feel and that and insecurity also, that he has to shore up. And he is the smartest guy in the room. Most of the time. He has then also
2: an advantage of knowing, and this is a really good point in terms of, you know, what makes him so intelligent by that point, is that, like, he's seen quite a bit, and so he has seen the limits of air power as somebody who is one of its enthusiastic boosters, right? Like, this is one of the, you know, like... um you know, like a paradox that sometimes comes into play where often people who have been, you know, like a, you know, like such a, you know, somebody like Nixon, who is, you know, this, you know, who is no stranger to annihilationist rhetoric when it comes to the communists, he's also able to, you know, let's say when he is, you know, uh, to to bring up the example he used earlier, Danny, of like, say, oh, when Curtis LeMay is on the phone saying like, uh, Mr. President, we've got to drop 30 bombs in, you know, Grenada or whatever, uh, he's decided that day, um, Nixon actually does have, you know, he's like, I've seen this movie before. I know what happens when we scorch the earth. And we don't, you know, like, it doesn't, you know, we, we, like, he, he can, because he's intelligent there, what it means is that he's able to, like, when, at least as I see him, Nixon is able to come up with way more legitimate rationalizations to do the more sensible thing that he would be otherwise expected to do because of that vast experience. So when presented with the situation to, again, start nuclear conflict. Like, you know, something that not even Trump being advised by John Bolton managed to pull off. Like, you know, there, I mean, obviously many decades of nucle- anti-nuclear dogma later, but still, you know, Nixon, I think, is is ultimately constrained by, re- you know, the kinds of forces that people would, I think, used to, you know, would chalk up to, like, you know, his, you know history or the position of the great man or whatever, but are ultimately just, like, the m- way myriad complex factors that just, you know, amount to deterrence or that, you know, are forcing history to conform to you know the trajectory that we ended up seeing it take, let's say, like in Vietnam, where you have you know de- you know two decades of mass employment in aircraft engineering and manufacturing, and you know those bombs are collecting a lot of dust, man, and and that's you know becomes a, a factor that ultimately you know Nixon would have to confront, just like Kennedy and vice versa. At least, uh, at least as it regards to Vietnam.
1: So then, what do you think the national security state like looks? under nixon in the 1960s because uh from my read of the history it is a thing that really does get going with truman the national security act we all know that uh, and it does exist in the 1950s and it is influential in certain degrees but it really only becomes the behemoth Uh, or really this uh, really only starts becoming the behemoth that it does become in the 1960s with the entrance of all of these guys into the Kennedy administration. And then they get even more power under LBJ, particularly during Vietnam. Um, You know, what happens if there's no Robert McNamara in office? What happens if there's no systems analysis that that comes to define the American war effort in Vietnam? What does the national security state look like under a, a Dick Nixon?
2: Different. The first thing to say is like different people get military contracts and that's a really important, you know, one of the the big scandal of the military at that high level during those, you know, when Kennedy got popped was not actually like the missile crisis and his rift with them over that it was actually about the. Uh, fighter plane TFX, one of my favorite uh, incidents to look at. And basically, I.F. Stone wrote a marvelous article for the New York Review of Books in the 1960s where he basically says, like, McNamara intervened on behalf of General Dynamics' bid, and General Dynamics was the big industrial patron of Lyndon Johnson, among many other things. And one of the things that, you know, I, I think that that episode especially illustrates the sort of rank favoritism when General Dynamics gets the bid over Boeing, um, illustrates the, you know, sort of kind of all the different like rivalries that don't conform to politics or ideological politics, but are really just the kind of like, you know, quite frankly, Third Reich gangster war industrialism that is, you know, uh, you know, sort of, I guess, fairly endemic to how these industries uh, tend to operate. So I think in the case of the CIA, the instinct would have been, you know, what could have they have done more operationally in the ways of Guatemala and Cuba? Where could they have, you know, tried to operate with a heavier hand? Um, I'm not sure, you know, I think Asia would have ultimately, Nixon was always so fascinated by China and was always so fascinated by East Asia that, you know, even if it hadn't been Vietnam, it wouldn't have surprised me if he had begun to say like, you know, the way that we're going to, you know, we're be a pincer. you know, God damn it. We're going to get him in Berlin and we're going to get him in Asia, you know, and like you can see him, you know, coming up with some kind of strategy like that, that actually would have basically just been recreating the, the Atchison, uh, what's that fucking thing? A
0: Crescent? Yeah. Like a great the, the alliance against. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know,
2: like, like it would have just been like an Exxon would have just found for another great. I mean, he basically just would have rebuilt containment, I think. <laughs> you know, it would have been like contain, it, like basically would have gotten to containment rollback, you know? That's actually how I kind of see it. I think that he would have restored the CIA with a vaster bureaucracy. It would have grown along a similar trajectory or whatever as you were describing, Danny. It would have come into its own, but with a far broader operation, a far more, you know, uh, intense operational mandate.
1: A very different character. I mean, you wouldn't have Kissinger. Kissinger is made possible by the move from the think tanks to the Kennedy and LBJ administrations. I think you have a very different—U.S. foreign policy looks— very different because I I I do think that there's agency there, and if you have, I mean, who would even who who would staff Nixon's NSC? Where would he be getting? I guess they'd probably be Eisenhower administration people, so the classic lawyers, businessmen, etc. Oh, yeah. I
2: mean, you know, he would have he probably like, look he may have he he probably would have Robert McNamara could have very easily been the Secretary of Defense in his administration.
0: I mean, he picked he picked Henry Cabot Lodge as his VP to the bafflement. Of a lot of Republicans who felt that he did not keep, give bring anything to the ticket, but he it represented Nixon's compulsive need to to ale- uh, to keep the sleeping dogs of Wall Street and Harvard lie by throwing him a bone in the form of putting this fucking blue blood Ivy League motherfucker on the ticket.
2: Yankee, poli- like you know, like like Nixon was always very conscious of like the Yankee power base. He really he really never. Um, you know, I, I think in a very, it, it's again, like one of these, you know, it's part of why I think like the Watergate mania, um, in terms of like obsessing over the, um, what I would just, you know, describe as like the imitation salaciousness <laughs> that people treat the, treat it with, um, at the moment, uh, like to me, you know, a lot of these, like, you know, uh, Nixon's, you know, con, you know, tensions uh, with the Eastern establishment, with you know, other, you know, his power block versus other power block, industrial competition, financial competition, uh, which becomes much more serious in the 1970s. And if anything, actually comes after, like Nixon and a lot of his cronies, kind of, you know, the SNLs who had backed him, for example, become some of the huge backers of Reagan in the late 70s and into the early 1980s. So. To me, there is a very, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, and then there are these figures, by the way, who kind of represent a convergence, right? Like John Connolly, who is, I think, like a really great example of how you can see a lot of the forces that were sort of, you know, advancing with history then, the ascendance of the Texas oil companies and so on. I mean, you know, that's a force that finds its way into the White House, no matter who's in charge, uh, it would seem.
1: Well, what, what just occurred to me is that maybe Nixon brings in people from a little organization found in Appleton, Wisconsin, in December 1958, the John Birch Society. So what's one of the major things that happens in the 1970s, of course, is you get the creation of the modern Republican Party and its famous three legs. What, what happens to, to the Birchers and the evangelicals if Nixon is in power a decade earlier than he is? That, to me, is a very interesting question.
2: So this is actually, wait, hold up one second. Yeah. I had this awesome book called the Yahoos uh, that's about the Birch society from that time. So like the Birchers are like, it's important to understand also that like the Birchers are, if anything, like the Nixon mob in like the Birch society, like those people you know, like are, they have a lot of history because they're basically, you know, all part of the people who were allied with Chiang Kai-shek back when his cause in trying to reshape China was like the dominant core in you know, a right wing uh, foreign policy cause celebrity. Like, the, uh, you know, if you go to the tr- just, you know, like as a shorthand, you know, way of illustrating it, if you go to the website of the Truman Library, they have a whole section of records that's just about the China lobby uh, and it sticks out. And Nixon and the John Birch Society, a lot of the people who co-founded, funded the John Birch Society were China Lobby. Uh, figures, They were really, really involved, had many business interests wrapped up with Chiang Kai-shek, were involved in, you know, uh, running a lot of West Coast businesses that had import-exporting businesses, shipping businesses wrapped up in China, had a lot at stake there. So I think that those people would have probably been, you know, to the extent that they still had have had political utility in enforcing, you know, whatever the hegemony you need right-wing paramilitary thugs for, then like, you know, they would have been given a free hand. But the problem, again, the countervailing force there is, well, you You would be empowering them at the same time that, like, you know, some freedom rides are going down in Selma, Alabama. And again, you are then it's like, all right, would would Richard Nixon empower the members of his coalition who would be, you know, like, you know, ramping up lynchings in the south? And that is a fucking like, you know, I I am not sure Richard Nixon ends up going along with that. I think that, like, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI happily cracked down on that stuff when it finally became, you know like absolutely politically convenient and necessary for them to do so.
1: I and imagine they would do the same less. thing for Nixon. In the early sixties, he needs them on a lot less than he would in the 1970s with the reaction to the, with reaction to the new left. But what do you, what do you guys think about evangelicals or Matt, do you have any, any thoughts on that uh, <laughs> fellow Wisconsin society? <laughs> I mean, the question is how to, what
0: I think a lot of it boils down to how does Nixon respond to civil rights? Because this is, as we said, the dominant domestic issue. Uh, And and reactionaries and evangelicals are uh, they find their footing in the battle over civil rights and and integration of the South. And if Nixon does not decide to do a brilliant end run uh, and return the 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 the, uh, uh, African-American voter to his Republican bosom uh, and we say, no, he doubles down on uh, the right wing drift sort of of the Republican Party that's already, you know, incipient. Uh, it grabs the Taft tail, you know, the, the the people who were who were coalescing around Goldwater at the time uh, and, and doubles down on them. Then you see a refusal at the federal level to do anything about civil rights, which I think leads to an acceleration of uh, the violent phase of the civil rights movement. In our world, the Watts riot is sort of a precursor to the whole uh, explosion of contradictions that happens in the late 60s. In 1965, you could easily see a situation where that timeline accelerates and you see 68 style riots in the early 60s. In the in 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 what would well, have been county first time. And let's not term. let's
2: not forget, that, like there were all there was already like a fair amount of like social violence on that scale that like people are like you know it's just sort of conventionally not really recalled. Like whether it's in Newark or in um you know I mean also rural America as well. I mean you have like the beginning as Danny was alluding to with the evangelicals. You have the beginnings of like you know rural white middle class Christian backlash. Like Pearlstein has a bunch of good anecdotes about this in Nixonland. Um, of you know like uh communities that are not particularly religious being, you know, extremely motivated and, and energized all of a sudden by like a curriculum that supposedly takes, you know, deep removes the Bible or something. And um, I think that that kind of like, it's, 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 I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, I, I wouldn't like when you just, you know, knowing how things did turn out and how ultimately those contradictions were or weren't resolved, I think that it would be really, really difficult because like to imagine how some of these contradictions would work out in a different way than they have simply because one of the really big forces that, has, you know, ended up, uh, you know, forcing the outcomes of the civil right in the 1960s, at least in social, you know, civil rights legislation in the way that it did then um, was the increasing political polarization, you know, that begins at that time. That sort of, you know, outward push that doesn't really yield, you know, has not yielded to the present, that bifurcation, because that is sort of also what drives this. And, you know, could the Republican Party be both things? Could it manage that response? Um, I, ultimately I think that like if there was that kind of mass violence breaking out but before an ele- before the election of 64 a democrat would come into the office and pass major social policy and also rapidly increase funding for the police uh in the model that ultimately came to pass in the 70s and 80s.
0: Yeah, I'd say that like a Nixon who 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 goes right hard right uh, in response to the civil rights movement sees yeah he 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 runs for re-election with like George Wallace as his running mate. And I think would probably have gotten creamed by uh, like Eugene McCarthy or somebody.
1: So, guys, let's end on on this now because the '60s, as you know, is more than a decade. The '60s is a vibe, and it's a vibe that basically gets going with JFK in in a lot of ways. Whether you're thinking about the Alliance for Progress and the sort of decade of development, whether you're thinking about the Peace Corps, which turns into the Teacher Corps. Whether you're thinking about, you know, that the the assassination of JFK really pulled the wool out from people and got the '60s going. He killed the male hat. We'd still we'd still be wearing fedoras, like a teenage Matt Chrisman. We would be wearing fedoras today. But <laughs> but uh, how do you think? I think this is kind of an interesting question because do you even get the new left? If there's a Nixon in there, what happens if the baby boomers first conscious political moment is not cool JFK and Camelot and that, and and him him getting uh, assassinated in 63? What if it's Dick Nixon? How does that change the vibe of the six seeds? How does that change the baby boomers trajectory?
2: I think that one of the big things like the sort of, you know, a big shift is basically like... Nixon was so contemptible, like, you know, in a very particularly and and culturally stratified way. There's this apocryphal – I say apocryphal because it's not – like, the context is not really fair. But, like, there's this apocryphal story about Pauline Kael uh, being in a theater and being like, you know, I don't – you know, in writing, like, I didn't know anybody in here who could have voted for Nixon when he, you know, won re-election in 72 by the landslide that he did. And I think that the – you know, that kind of – like, you know – Part of me, you know, the immediate question I put to myself is then would that kind of, um, you know, red state, blue state kind of degree of like, you know, um, disaffiliation from, you know, so much of the polis that comes, you know, with Nixon, you know, is at least even if it's just in vibe. Uh, That is really the, you know, and and is itself more than anything kind of a reflection of the culmination of the 60s rather than any, you know, whole impulse by itself. I don't know. I think that, like, you know, Nixon may ultimately have been defeated by a a John Kennedy who is four years older. And if anything, you know, his health issues had gotten a bit better and he wasn't totally doped up all the time. And, you know, maybe he found God and wasn't sleeping around or something. And then baby boomers are even more brain rotted because they got a cool president who lived.
1: <laughs> Matt, any takes on, on the, the Nixon 60s? What's the vibe of the Nixon 60s? Well, I think you see some
0: sort of open race war in America, like at a lower level. I mean, obviously, we had that. We had that for 20 years. I mean, we, we had it basically since the end of the Civil War. It just gained it went, went up and down in time in intensity, you know, you'd have spikes. Uh, like a big spike at the end of reconstruction yeah beamers, like, and 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 we measure it we measure it with our e meters you know yeah value a big spike in uh the post-world War one era the red summer nineteen uh seventeen or nineteen nineteen and then uh of course a big spike after World War Two, and I think it just would have been a more uh intense uh and earlier uh a, a, a creation which makes me think does that accelerate the creation of this like newly enlightened, you know, middle class who end up being the, uh, the social auxiliaries of the civil rights movement, or do they sort of retreat, uh, into, uh, racial awareness. And does that sort of that process of, uh, of cosmopolitanization that occurs when you wire up a, 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 a country with a media network that connects them all to each other instantaneously. Uh, maybe that gets interrupted, broken up before it can really have an effect. Uh, I mean, it, it's, uh, i don 't know and and or there 's a question because America has always been this one way or another tenuously assembled uh, uh, structure that really depends on a lot more on than other countries on people all sort of collectively agreeing to lie to each other uh, because of our constitutional system, which means if there 's greater stress placed on it earlier, do we see instead of you know this culture war a a return to sectional civil war?
2: Well, I, I think that one of the big like and this is sort of like, it, you know, it's a great example of like, you know, like the weird push and pull of history. Right. Because what you were correctly describing as the moment of like this incredible schism, what is Eisenhower doing? He's laying down the interstates. He is building the physical infrastructure to connect the nation as never before. You know, by the way, opting for cars over rail and all that. But like still, moreover, you know, the there is a, a, a logic of um, national development That is, I think, like, you know, part of, you know, you could even argue is part of what ultimately, you know, it's those decisions made in the 50s to commit America to confront the Cold War and communist threat as one nation, as one unified nation that ultimately makes it so that by the 1960s, the federal government, you know, whether, you know, Richard Nixon would want it or not, is on a fucking collision course with the South. You know, as like on the on you know the race question, as it were, breaks out into the open again. And, you know, does Richard Nixon incident accidentally help Stoke a race race war, or does he bottle it? And that is like that is a true
0: like uh you know, like flip that's a that's a true flip of coin, sir to me. To in order to bottle it, Nixon would have to carry out like a continuation of Eisenhower's domestic spending agenda which was coming into direct conflict with its military spending, a reckoning that ended up coming in the 70s and that would have been there the whole time. And the question is, does capital essentially allow uh, Nixon to fulfill that? Or is the threat it poses, like the threat, like there was an option in the 1970s during the stagflation era to fix the problem by dumping money on the lowest squadron of Americans just hugely increasing their spending capacity to soak up this inflation. That could have been done, but that would have been literally empowering with a direct redistribution of fucking resources and capital, uh, the most dispossessed and therefore most racially coded American.
2: Well, but this is why, like, you know, the 19. But this is Nick Nixon. But Brother Nixon did introduce the solution to this in his presidency. What would become the tried and true method, also reemployed with the 1986 National Security Declaration of Ronald Reagan, which is that there is a war on drugs, and that there, in addition to being a war on drugs, that has to rapidly increase the number of people that we, you know, prosecute. We also have to lock them up, which becomes, by the way, a marvelous regional employment program all across America. And so that, to me, is you know one of the things. Then you know, it. We also then you know would Nixon have to turn to the carceral? solution to the problems you lay out of the fact that if you're going to have this redistribution effect, you know, like you, like you you can do it in a, you can either actually reckon with it and, you know, like empower the proletariat that would kill you or, you can lock them up, and you know, actually find ways to take the directionally, you know, most disadvantaged by you know the by the you know laissez-faire system, people who live in you know rural you know Colorado, and poof, in the 1990s, ADX Florence pops up there, and then they have a jail where you do it. In, you know, in, in 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 1960, what succeeds Alcatraz? It's, you know, Alcatraz moves from being a prison where the Supermax facility, where they lock up people, you know, next to San Francisco, whatever, it's relocated when it's closed to Marion, Illinois, in the middle of nowhere. So there's a way in which you you can literally see what Matt's talking about in terms of how they actually would resolve those directional conflicts and did both under Democratic administrations in the 1960s and then again in the 1970s after they had launched, you know, the drug wars.
0: And you have with Carter, a guy who just was not what he was driven by his conscience to do was exactly what Nixon had been specifically trying to avoid, which is neutering the American political structure, like neutering uh the power of the president and, and America as like a self-determining political entity. Uh and that is you could that's the reason some people think that he got uh, basically stitched up on Watergate to get him out of there because globa well, homo said yeah goodbye Dickie. There's Bye-bye. people are talking about it folks. People are saying it more and more uh but if we say so nixon gets a chance early to assert himself and create this new like carceral welfare state uh does that do anything to prevent the neoliberal turn when the inevitable uh, '70s energy crisis kicks? Up? Well,
2: I think though that what we're describing is the neoliberal term come early. The difference is that like the intellectual maturation that had happened by the end of the '70s that allowed like what we call neoliberal as like an intellectual movement to sort of like you know develop. I think that like that scaffolding hadn't been like Hayek's reputation hadn't been adequately resuscitated yet. Um, Milton Friedman hadn't had his big hate. He hadn't won his Nobel yet. Um, I think and there's no
1: deindustrialization yet, or at least not to the same degree. So, so that, precisely. That he's, he, and this is this actually leads me to an interesting hinge point. Maybe uh, we should gather uh, the three of us next season, which is Nixon is president uh, uh, for in, in the early 60s. Then JFK does two terms, and then Nixon comes back. And what does that look like? Yes, With yes. Nixon in the early 70s. Noah Colwyn of the Blowback Podcast, thank you so much for joining Matt and myself. We really appreciate it and look forward to having you back soon. Uh, Thank you for having me. I look forward to coming back. You don't have Colwyn to kick around
2: anymore. You won't have Colwyn to kick around anymore.
1: Uh, All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Later.